Well, I am happy to be here today. It's just the perfect day to take the freeway. <laughs> Not too many people out there. Friday night, meditation at my little meditation center where I work and live. A woman said to me afterwards, she said, I have a lot of anxiety. I feel like I need to change my karma. Can you help me with that? So I said, well, do you know what karma is? And she said, sort of, but maybe you could clarify it for me and suggest a few ways I could do that. So our karma is really important, according to Buddhism, because it's our karma that migrates to the next lifetime. Good karma, good next lifetime. <laughs> karma is what we think, what we say, and what we do. Simple. That's our karma. Every time we think something, say something, or do something, we're transforming energy and giving it a moral value. Skillful, unskillful. Good, bad. A Buddhist will take five precepts in order to change their speech karma and their action karma. Five precepts, not to take life, not to take what is not given, not to indulge in sexual misconduct, not to speak unskillfully, not to consume intoxicants. One of the propositions passed is going to be more difficult to hold that, <laughs> hold that precept. So far, those have to do with what we do physically, what we do physically. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, getting high. One has to do with what we say. No unskillful speech, harsh speech, malicious speech, gossip, idle chatter, false speech. We want to try to avoid that. Anxiety sometimes is falls, takes us into the future because we're a little bit skeptical or afraid or fearful of what might happen. We're not sure. All we can do is imagine how it could be. And if you have a glass that's half full, the future may look inviting. And if your glass is half empty, you may not want to go there. But of course we have nothing to say about that, do we? The future is always manifesting in the present moment. The future is always turning out to be now. So if that's the case, I suppose what we could do to limit our anxiety is just to look around, see how we're doing. How does it feel? Are you in a burning building? If so, it's not looking real good. But on the other hand, if you're in Ventura at this wonderful church, surrounded by friends and family, it's pretty darn good. And the future may turn out to be pretty darn good as well. So we're working on what we say and what we do when we take those Buddhist precepts. But the mind, the mind, that's the tough one. Because in order to make the mind peaceful, 
we need to do some work. We need to use some Buddhist technologies, if you will, to cultivate the mind. Two forms of Buddhist meditation, vipassana, samatha, tranquility, insight. I'm going to talk about tranquility meditation. I like tranquility. It makes me feel good. So I'll sit down and I'll cross my legs and I'll sit in that cushion for hours at a time. And I'll bring my attention to the tip of my nose and feel the sensation of breath. Gumming in, going out, coming in, going out. And what I find are five characteristics. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Those five characteristics happen because my mind has become one-pointed. I'm focused in a laser-like way, in a sustained way, on the object of meditation, which is my breath. When I get even deeper, I can lose applied thought and sustained thought. I don't have to have the intention to follow my object of meditation. It just happens naturally. So I have a greater sense of pleasure, a greater sense of happiness, and a greater sense of equanimity. Now, we don't want to give any of that stuff up. And sometimes people come to Buddhism, and maybe other religions as well, because they want to be happy. The problem with happiness is there's always another side to it. It's always dualistic. So when you have happiness, you have sadness. When you have pleasure, you have pain. And for the Buddhist, for the meditator, the idea is to go past happiness in order to go past sorrow or unhappiness. The idea is to go past pleasure in order to go past pain. And as we meditate and focus even more on the object of our meditation, which in this case could be the breath, what we find is we come to this place of balance and equanimity with no pleasure and no pain, no happiness and no sorrow. It doesn't sound very inviting, I know, but the outcome is peace. Now, most people, when you say, how would you like peace, they're going to say, a piece of what? <laughs> Are we talking chocolate cake here? And I would say, no, we're talking about this sort of eternal calmness that comes when we find our inner peace. Because the Buddha assured us someplace buried deep down inside is a place of peace that's always there. It never goes away. And once you find it, it can become your refuge. Now, the title of the talk was How to Get Out, How to Find It. How do you get out of this thing called samsara, this thing called birth and death, this thing that just raises our anxiety level sometimes to the point where we just don't know if we should go on or not. And, and it's always been that way, and it will never change, and that why the, that's why the Buddha said it is samsara, the place where birth and death occurs. Now, just the other day, I'm sitting in the backyard of the meditation center, and I'm watching the koi pond pump trickle out water. And as I get older, those things are much more exciting. 
<laughs> and Thomas the cat had jumped on my lap, and I'm petting him, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a hawk flies through the orange tree after a sparrow, misses the sparrow, hits the ground, and in an instant, Thomas the cat was off my lap chasing that hawk. And it just, like, blew my mind because, you know, unexpected to say the least. And, and that little bit of peace that I had found in that moment of watching the koi pond pump was shattered. Now, the hawk didn't get the sparrow. Thomas the cat didn't get the hawk. Everything sort of turned out okay. But in that moment, I thought to myself, wow, life is a trip. Because we don't know. In the very next moment, we don't know. And it takes a lot of courage not to know and take that next step. So our mind is our friend because it creates stories for us. And we become either the victor or the victim. And we invite others in our circle to join our story. And some have leading roles and some don't. And that's how we make it, one step after the other, into this unknown future, which turns out to be the present moment. I oftentimes have expectations. I expect things to be a certain way. But the penalty for having expectations is always disappointment. Because my expectations are based on the past which sometimes has nothing at all to do with the future. The reason it doesn't have anything to do with the future is because everything only happens once. Everything only happens once. It's always the first time in our life. Even though it may seem familiar, and perhaps we felt that we have done this before, or talked to this person before, or knew this person's name, and they were old friends or new friends, and yet when you see them in that present moment, it is the very first time you are seeing them. And they are seeing you. Wow. So rather than feeling... I've been through this before, and we haven't, our life becomes this miracle of unfolding excitement, if one has the right mind state, fear, if one has the wrong mind state, anticipation, if one can hardly wait for the next moment to occur. But what's the way out? How can we get out of this cycle? of birth and death, of expectation and disappointment. What's the way out? Well, upon reflection, I had an insight. And it rarely happens to me. But I had this really interesting insight that everything that is created has to be destroyed. Everything that begins has to end. And if I'm going to create a place of refuge, it will have to end. If I'm trying to find a way out and I build it through building conditions for it to happen, I will be disappointed when it ends. 
And everything on this planet, in this world, that we are aware of had a beginning. And we're willing to argue what we think the beginning was and why. And of course, none of us will ever know. And it's going to have an end. At some point, our little part of the universe will have to end, and then something else will take its place. It never truly ends forever, it's just recycled. And something else happens. So I thought about what the Buddha said. He said, I have discovered something that's unborn and undying. That, I said to myself, could be the refuge I'm looking for. If it's unborn and undying, it will be forever. Or not at all. The definition could fit both of those. Okay. How hard is it, though, to encourage someone to be unborn? <laughs> that that's sort of like the goal. I see a little baby over there just born. That's like the goal. I'm going to be unborn. I can hardly wait to be unborn and undying. I wonder what kind of exciting adventures I'm going to have there when I'm unborn and undying. But if it's always been, that's the place of peace. Profound peace. Eternal peace. And we have a name for that in Buddhism. That eternal peace we call nirvana. Nirvana in every Buddhist school is the ultimate end goal. We want to achieve nirvana to end our suffering. And nirvana has two characteristics that I'd like to talk about today. One of them is being a place of equanimity, balance, and profound acceptance. Now, profound acceptance is tough because that means you have to accept things just the way you think they are. Not the way they are, but the way you think they are. And you have to come to peace with that. And you might say, but why? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? I can't understand. How could it be so different from my interpretation, from my own personal experience? How could it be so different? And probably, we'll never know. It just sort of is. And maybe it doesn't have the value of good or bad. Maybe that's not part of this isness. Maybe it just is. And maybe I can rest in the mystery of isness. Maybe I can just be there and it'll be okay. Maybe I don't need it to be any different. Maybe I shouldn't want it to be any different. Maybe it just needs to be there. But it is so hard because most of us have to know. Malaysian airliner, Indian Sea. Whoa, Indian Ocean, big place. We gotta find out where it is and why it went down. We're going to spend millions of dollars and send hundreds of people to get that answer. Will it change anything? No, it won't. It'll change the way we think about it. And we're willing to spend a whole lot of money and send a whole lot of people out there so we can think differently about it. We don't like mystery anymore. We have Google. 
You know, we've got the internet. Any question you have, you can find the answer. And, and we're so used to that now. But maybe there are times when there isn't an answer and we have to rest in the mystery and accept it for what it is and go on to the next thing. And go on to the next thing. And the biggest mystery of all will be when our time comes that we have to check out and say goodbye. You know what's so scary about birth and death? It's so ordinary. It happens all the time. So we give it this sort of scary value. Whoa. Make it special. Make it more understandable. Why does that have to happen all the time? The Buddha would say, because it's samsara. That's the only place birth and death can occur. So don't be surprised. It's extraordinarily ordinary. Just come to a place of acceptance. But acceptance, again, is really difficult unless you have the second characteristic, which is called balance. See, balance means that you're in the middle. Buddhism talks a lot about being in the middle because they call it the middle path. So they encourage us not to pick sides. Don't pick left or right, good or bad, light or dark, because it's dualistic. The coin is the most important part. So we have a coin, and we have heads on one side and tails on the other, or we have good on one side and bad on the other. And the Buddha is saying, try to look at the coin, because it holds both those sides, and it may be the same value, or it may be no value at all. It's the coin that's most important, but intellectually, because it's not dualistic, we can't see it. We can only see one side or the other. So in our meditation practice, when we start to exercise our intuition, we come to that place of oneness. I like to call it interconnectedness rather than oneness. Because one can be deceiving. One can be looked at as being something attainable, something we want to be. We want to be the one. Well, the problem with being the one is there's no diversity. And it's important for every community to have diversity. And if we're all trying to attain oneness, we're leaving a lot of our fellow beings behind. How about instead of being one, we say, I want to be connected. And I want to see how I'm already connected. That I don't need to be one with the Catholic or the Jew or the Muslim or the Hindu. I want to see how I'm connected to them. And that will allow me to feel comfortable in the presence of diversity. Because we'll have unity, which will be the building block of our community. Unity, community. Diversity is a good thing. And I'm happy it's a good thing because no two people think alike. And they'll be happy to share why they don't agree with you. <laughs> and I listen, I listen carefully, and sometimes I agree with them. I go, you're absolutely right. I don't know how that thought got in my head, and I'm so glad you're part of my life, and I'm connected to you, because now I feel better. Now I understand I didn't need to reach that conclusion. 
I should have just said, oh yeah, okay, works for me, you know? So we have this balance, number one, we have this equanimity that brings us peace and that is the way out of our suffering. That's the portal, that's the doorway. That's the secret panel that we pull aside. And behind that panel is peace and comfort. Now, having said that, it is so difficult, number one, to practice the five precepts, number two, to practice meditation, number three, to have deep insights into the true nature of reality, see the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena, and embrace that as being you. Because what that says, in a way, is you do not exist as an event. You exist as a process. And some people want to be events. You know who they are. <laughs> and you're not going to talk them out of it. You're not going to say, well, you're just part of my process. <laughs> so sometimes we have to let them be. Sometimes we can't do anything about it. No matter how long we talk, no matter what kind of vocabulary we might have, it's not going to work. We're working on ourselves. That's the joy of being a human, is we have self-reflection. We can see our good points and not so good points. And through choice and awareness, we can change that. We can become the people we always wanted to be. And then we can become everybody, because we're connected and they're connected to us. And the better we become, the better everybody else becomes. Now when I say better, I got to define that. I got to define being better. Being better means far less greed, much more generosity. A lot less hatred and anger, more love and kindness. Hatred and anger is, feels good sometimes. It just feels righteous. But you know what? It burns you alive inside and out. It ruins family relationships. It ruins your relationship with the world around you. Anger and hatred only hurt you. The other person can just walk away. Finally, we come to wisdom, insight, rather than delusion and ignorance. This is so hard because what is delusion? What is ignorance? What don't I see? And if I don't see it, can't understand it, how can I change it? And the process of meditation and dharma is to allow us to wake up to our self-delusion. And first we get rid of the delusion, and then we get rid of the self. Now when I say get rid of the self, I don't mean we kill it or annihilate it or don't think it's useful and important. We do think it's useful and important and we know that we need a self to live in this very complicated world. But do we always have to be that limited little self? Are there times when we can just sort of step out of that role and take on the interconnected self, the big self? 
the way we live 1% of the time, not 99% of the time, small, afraid, anxious, but big, embracing, finding peace, finding comfort. Can we do that? And we can. Can you tell your friends and family about it? No, you can't. Because <laughs> they'll want to do an intervention. So you got to keep it to yourself as you evolve and unfold and turn out to be everything to everyone, including yourself. You have to sort of keep it to yourself. Enjoy the process. The goal now, the goal now is less significant than the process. And pretty soon, you're out of it in the best sense. You found the way out. That limited self with all that suffering and dissatisfaction no longer is your identity. It becomes optional. You have a choice. You found your choice. And you found it through generosity, compassion, and wisdom. And you will never be the same. And the world to you, your experience of it, will never be the same either. But again, it takes a really long time. Sometimes lifetimes. But in each lifetime, it gets a little easier. In each month or year that you're practicing, it gets a little bit easier. It's less about you and more about everyone else. So hopefully what I had to say today made sense, will be useful, and was somewhat entertaining. And now I'd like to close my talk, not with a prayer, but with a little blues harmonica. Thank you. Okay, little blues in the key of G. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs>